0: I always find it handy when a book or movie refuses to hide the fact that a certain character is a villain, and they just go ahead and give the villain an obviously evil-sounding name. Disney's really helpful in this way, which makes sense because they're stories for children. Um, if if the reckless and greedy and self-absorbed demeanor of the woman who's obsessed with skinning puppies doesn't give you an indication that she's evil, then her name probably does: Cruella De Vil. The word cruel is right in there. How, how very handy. Or how about this one? Even before she curses an innocent baby and and before she transforms into a fire-breathing dragon, the, the villainess of Sleeping Beauty can be easily identified by name alone. The name Maleficent is synonymous with malevolent or diabolical. So that's handy. Her name literally means evil person. And finally, there's Lion King. In Lion King, all the characters have names true to the language of the setting. They have African-sounding names. Uh, Actually, they're truly African names, names like Mufasa and Simba and Rafiki and Pumba, just to name a few. All the characters have these African-sounding names, except one, that is, and that's the villain. And beyond the sneering, suave, selfish persona, kids know he's the villain because of the conspicuous use of a harsh, painful English word that refuses to go away. Scar. His name is Scar, so you know he's a bad guy. There's others, Voldemort, Hannibal Lecter, Smeagol, Dr. Jekyll. I mean, the list can go on, on, on and on, but all of these names have one thing in common. They sound unpleasant. They sound jarring. They sound violent. They sound disgusting. They sound evil. and They are evil characters. And it's always handy when the name of a villain sounds evil, so you know that they're a villain. Well, in scripture, pegging the enemy is a little tougher sometimes. Many of the villains that trip us up have names that don't immediately sound evil. In fact, many sound pleasing and comforting, even worth celebrating. So villains like pride or self-reliance or status, they're enemies of God's people, terrible enemies. Even though they're enemies to us, the world around us tells us they're preferable, even virtuous, to be proud and self-reliant and elevated status. They don't sound evil, they sound desirable. But there's one ancient word used throughout the New Testament that does indeed sound villainous. In fact, its name, its Aramaic name, Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke, and, and when Jesus used this word, it reminds me of the names of disgusting false gods around Israel in the Old Testament. Names like Baal, or Asherah, or Molech those are like really gross sounding names they're fitting names for these evil gods and this enemy's name fits in right fits, fits right in with those names they they conjure up to me images of violent servitude and sleazy arrogance and bloated consumerism it just sounds evil to say and this villain is the villain named mammon mammon as you know is the toughest idol for us to combat it's a word, actually it's more like an idolatrous name, mammon. And it means, anybody remember? Money, wealth, yeah. Mammon means wealth. Mammon. Uh, say the word a couple times, mammon. It, it's not a pleasant word to say, is it? it? It sounds gross and wrong. Like It's like a disgusting cross between mammoth, which is something enormous and wonderful, and manna, something God's people consumed providentially, except you take out the wonderful part of enormous and wonderful, and you take out the providential care part of consuming providential, and you're left with just enormous and consuming. And that is mammon, enormous and consuming. Mammon is the god of comfort, self-sufficiency, power, and greed. We've discussed mammon frequently during our multi-year journey through Luke's writings And that's because Jesus discusses mammon frequently in the Gospels, and the early church wrestled with the ramifications of mammon's presence often in the book of Acts. In fact, here's some statistics for you regarding mammon, the idol of wealth. Of the 38 parables that Jesus taught, almost half of them, 16, deal with the use of money and possessions to some degree. The Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son are arguably the two most famous parables. Ask any random pagan on the street, they probably will have at least a gist of what those two parables are about, and both feature mammon uh, to some degree. Across the four Gospels, a staggering 288 verses, which is roughly one in every ten, deal directly with the subject of mammon, which means maybe a tenth of the sermons that I preach should deal with mammon as well. And you're thinking, it feels like a tenth of the sermons you preach are about money. Uh, That would be fair. Finally, There's around 500 verses in all of scripture about prayer, specifically, and about 500 verses in all of scripture about faith, and that makes sense because prayer and faith are fairly important, and so a number like 500 makes sense. They deserve around 500 verses each, but there are over 2,000 verses about money and possessions. 500 about prayer, 500 about faith, add those up, that's half as many only as there are about money and possessions in scripture. It is a huge, huge topic. You cannot read scripture and escape Mammon. Mammon is either lurking in the shadows of the stories of scripture in the background or being shoved into the forefront and examined through characters like Joseph, Moses, Solomon, the prophets, Jesus, Paul. They all had lots of things to say about money and possessions. In Acts alone, we discussed Mammon in the stories of Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira, Simon the sorcerer, Lydia, the, the purple dealer. Um, we discussed mammon as we examined Paul's time as a tent maker. And when we studied the rioting crowds in Ephesus in chapter 19, who wanted to get rid of Paul because Paul was a threat to what? Their financial security. Money shows up as early as chapter 2 when everyone in the church devalues mammon and shares their possessions with everyone so that no, there's nobody in need. And it showed up as recently as Paul's latest trip to Jerusalem where he had collected a bunch of money, as sort of this peace offering between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So money, mammon, all over the book of Acts that we've been studying. The villainous sounding mammon. It, it creeps around and lurks behind much of the action that we've looked at in the last two years. Well, today, it's just a tiny little passage. We actually um, began to talk about it. We touched on it last week. But today, in this tiny little passage, my intention is to lay mammon bare and examine it in all its wretchedness. Not all of, some of its wretchedness. Because you could, like I said, you could do an entire 10-piece sermon series on just money easily. And most pastors do. In this little passage, we'll see a man of power and prestige and privilege. A Roman ruler who worships mammon above all things. And, and in his actions, We will see a validation, I think, of Jesus' brutal words when he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I know you may, you probably have heard, the eye of the needle wasn't an actual eye of a needle. It was actually a hole in the wall of Jerusalem that a camel would like really have to duck down to get, so it's not impossible. It's, you may have heard that. I think it misses the point completely. Totally misses the, the point is, if you are rich, it's more likely than not that you are far from the heart of the gospel. It is more likely than not that you want nothing to do with the actual in-depth discipline-requiring teachings of Jesus. It's harder for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to enter the eye of a needle. Whether that's a hole in a wall, an actual hole in a needle, whatever. It's hard. So let's go back and look at, take a closer look at Felix paying attention to how Felix serves as a reflecting glass for our own broken allegiance to the idol of convenience and status and self-reliance, Mammon. So let's read Acts 24, verses 24 to 27. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, a female Jew. am not sure why they have their own word for that, but they do. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for Paul frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Por- Porcius, 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 Festus. That's just an, another, like, speaking of ugly, evil sounding names, Porcius Festus or Porcius? its, it's like, It literally makes me think of a big, slovenly pig. Porcius Festus. But here's the interesting thing. He was actually way, way better at his job than Felix was, historically speaking. Anyway, um, after two years had passed, Felix was su- succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. We talked about the injustice of that last week. Uh, it, it's pretty ugly. I find Felix, however, to be a fascinating case study as well as a powerful portrait of myself at my most faithless and selfish. His motives are so obvious and so ugly that they end up convicting me deeply and reminding me of the worth and beauty of a faithful and sacrificial, truth-filled life, as we see from Paul in this passage. Contrast of Paul to Felix, um, I see myself in both, and more often than not, I've seen myself in Felix's shoes. And I'm sure that's the case for you. In fact, I would argue that Felix's response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is one that we, in 21st century North America, will far more frequently encounter in our attempts at evangelization than what we've seen greet Paul when he tries to evangelize Jewish people. We're, we tend to feel like martyrs as Christians. We're not, and I'll touch on that again briefly later. Um, we tend to think that if we bring the gospel to the world around us, they will fight us and combat us and there will be harsh ramifications for us doing that. And just that's not often the case. That's just not normally how it goes. More often than not, we get the same response as Paul does from Felix. Felix and Drusilla are apparently spiritual seekers with a degree of respect and knowledge for the ways of Jesus. However, Any encounter with the more radical moral ramifications of Jesus causes Felix and Drusilla to quite literally throw up their hands and say, enough, enough. That's quite enough talk of things like judgment and righteousness and coming judgment for now. Self-control, don't want to hear about it. Is it getting warm in here? Is it starting to feel a little hot under the collar with all this talk of self-control and righteousness? So enough, Paul, enough. You scamper on back to your prison cell. I'm a very busy and important man with many busy and important duties to fulfill and very little taste for anything that might compromise my busyness and importance. You can tell that I'm very important because I'm very busy. And you can tell I'm very busy because I'm very important. Um, And the busier and more importanter you are, the more money you see. And the more money you see, the more importance and busyness you can purchase. And the more money you see, just the greater you become. So I'm very busy, very important. So I will summon you, Paul. When my busy and important schedule can accommodate discussions of the salvation of my soul. I'm a little too busy and important to talk about such things right now. When, by the way, I can probably squeeze you in, consult his abacus, I probably squeeze you in the third Sunday in February. How's that sound? Let's make a date for that. I could probably squeeze in time for discussion of the eternal destination of my soul then, but not until then, because as you may remember, I'm very busy, very important. This, my friends, I think, is the dominant reaction to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the cultural moment that we find ourselves in today. Curiosity drowned out by comfort and convenience. Sacred truth diluted by selfishness and selective obedience. You guys know what I mean by selective obedience? There's people who want certain parts of the gospel that they like, like when Jesus says he'll bless you and give you whatever you want. Ooh, I like that. Let's Let's obey that. But then Jesus also says... Give all you have to the poor and then you can come follow me. Take up your cross. You will die if you follow me. And they're like, no, I don't really want to obey that. I'll select what I want to obey. And that selective obedience and selfishness drowns out truth. Purity devalued by pride and prestige and profit margins. I think that's the dominant reaction to the teachings of Jesus by most people. I don't think it's disgust and rage like we assume it will be. Certain... Traditional teachings of scripture may inspire disgust and rage, that's true. Certain approaches to evangelism and proclaiming truth may inspire disgust and rage for the world around us, that's true. Certain hypocrisies of so-called church leaders may inspire disgust and rage, and rightfully so. But I think that when people read or hear the actual teachings of Jesus, they don't get angry so much as they get disturbed and uncomfortable, which is what we see from Felix and Drusilla, which is... Never mind Felix and Drusilla, which is what I've seen in my own life numerous times. I don't like this. I'm going to keep that at arm's length and deal with these other parts that I do like. That's what I've been guilty of in my own life and what Felix and Drusilla are guilty of. Before we go any further, just let me fill you in a little bit on the life of Paul's audience in this passage, Felix and Drusilla. What do you remember about Felix from last week? If you Do you remember anything? I, I talked really briefly about what Felix was like. What do you remember about Felix? Yes, he had a, an elevated position in government, but did he always have a lofty status? Where did he begin? Yeah, that's right, Trish. He began as a slave. And his brother, Pallas, was a freed slave, and he worked his way up to the court of the emperor. And because of that influence, Felix was given influence as well. He was given this position of power in Judea. So he went from slave to ruler. But he was brutal, and he was very greedy, and he was despised by the Jews of Judea. Remember I mentioned this? he assassinated a high priest in the temple? You can imagine how the Jews like that. They don't like it very much. So he was a brutal and greedy man. Um, his wife, Drusilla, we didn't talk about her last week. She's pretty interesting. She is a Jewish woman who divorced her husband to marry a Gentile. No, that that's right, Barb. That did not go over well with her people either. There's entire books of the Bible that are written to convince Jewish women to not marry the Gentiles around them. It was a big, 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 big deal. And divorce was a big, big, big deal too. For her, it would have been a grave sin to divorce a Jew to marry a Gentile. Because of this background knowledge, you can see why Felix and Drusilla respond as they do to Paul's message, right? Since Felix was only interested in the way of Jesus as a matter of novelty and not a matter of salvation, he was just, he wanted to know more. He didn't really want to commit his life to it. Because of that, he dismissed Paul as soon as Paul got personal. A powerful, self-made man like Felix, who rose from slave to king, would have no need to submit to Jesus, a king who did the reverse, emptied himself to the point of living and dying like a slave. Felix went from slave to king. Why would he worship a man who went from king to slave, willingly? And so he uses the dual excuses of selfish power and fruitless busyness to free himself from his accountability to the king of all kings. Felix is a king, but we're talking here about the king of kings. And so he uses, I'm too busy, I'm too powerful to deal with this right now, I'll call you when it's convenient. Paul makes sure to teach about three very uncomfortable aspects of faith. Uncomfortable to present to another person. I still feel uncomfortable when I present these things to you guys, and I'm very comfortable with you guys, and you know that I do it from a place of love. But it still makes me uncomfortable to talk about this to other people, and that's righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. I mean, there's, there's pastors who love and only talk about those things, um, but very few people are willing to regularly confront those topics for themselves, to self-examine where they're at when it comes to righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. That's an uncomfortable thing for us to, to touch on. It requires the kind of selfless humility and honest self-examination that is entirely unnatural to us in our mammon-loving state. It's not natural for us to be humble and to honestly examine us and see faults And turn those faults over to a God who promises forgiveness. That doesn't come naturally to us. That's a miracle. In fact, every time it happens, it's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And Felix and Drusilla are very much in their mammon worshiping state. For a Jewish woman who divorced her husband to marry a non-Jew, blinded by lust for power and privilege, talk of self-control was wildly uncomfortable. These are not people known for their self-control. This is Felix's third wife. I don't know if they were consecutive. Or if they were concurrent, like I don't know if he kept divorcing women and marrying new women or if he just had three wives at a time. Neither of those things would surprise me. I have the feeling that it's consecutive. But either way, he just kept divorcing women because he could. Uh, He didn't have much self-control when it comes to that. For a Roman ruler prone to assassinating enemies and executing judgment based on how it can benefit himself, talk of righteousness and judgment are likewise wildly uncomfortable. Wouldn't you think? Jesus, through Paul, represented a threat to everything that they most genuinely loved. Power, privilege, prestige. Paul, through Jesus, knew exactly what this couple needed to hear. It would have taken guts to confront A, the man most directly responsible for whether you stay in jail for the rest of your life or not, to confront that person, and B, an infamously vicious Roman king who's not above assassinating a few people who get in his way. It takes guts to present this message— of righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment to this man. Don't you think? But Paul had no interest in winning powerful people over for the gospel if they were unwilling to confront the more jarring ramifications of that same gospel. He was not all about just forgiveness, blessings, grace. Those are a super, that's where we start with the gospel, in fact. But for a man like Felix, if you start there and end there, they get a really twisted and distorted sense of what the gospel's about, don't they? I think this is a powerful temptation for us today as well. Now, I'm going to get really specific here, but I, I think it's worth addressing. We tend to celebrate famous people who shout out Jesus at award shows, or post-game interviews, or political speeches, because we feel like it validates us. If this famous person is okay with Jesus, then I feel better that I'm okay with Jesus. It's kind of like when McDonald's came to Westlock, we instantly felt superior to Barhead. Barhead doesn't have a McDonald's. We were validated by Ronnie McDonnie himself, who says, Westlock is worthy of my presence. Barhead, not worthy of my golden arches. And so we feel vindicated when someone in a position of cultural power uses the name of Jesus. I'm sorry, Lisa, I always pick on Barhead. She said she's grateful that Barhead doesn't have a McDonald's, and that's fair. But the reason I bring that up, we feel vindicated when someone in a position of cultural power uses the name of Jesus. But we ignore often the complications inherent with those connections. I remember once my mom watching a country music awards show and saying that her favorite part was hearing Toby Keith get up there and say, I just want to begin by saying thank you to my Lord Jesus Christ who made all this possible. And she was over the moon excited about that. That was a huge validation for her own faith, which I guess is a good thing. and I shouldn't bemoan it too quickly except that Toby Keith rose to prominence on songs like Red Solo Cup or Beer for My Horses and other songs that promote pointless and excessive drunkenness it just i looked up list of toby keith songs google gave me like 30 and probably 15 of them had the word drunk in the title it was crazy or there's other songs of his that are famous like Courtesy of the Red, White and Blue Angry American and American Soldier which are just jingoistic, flag-waving, racist celebrations of war. Not to mention his first most popular song, I Want to Talk About Me, which is best described as, I need this woman to shut up because, well, I want to talk about me. Does Jesus Christ celebrate drunkenness and vanity and bombing Muslims? If you listen to Toby Keith, by the way, that's fine. I spent an entire sermon last week talking about hip-hop artists who... If most pastors read their lyrics, they would just blush. It, it would. So if you listen, I'm not condemning you listening to Toby Keith. That's, that's fine. It's just that it gets complicated when we celebrate rich and powerful people proclaiming the name of Jesus. It, it should bristle with us a little bit. Often they do so for promotional reasons. If you're in country music and you don't thank the Lord Jesus Christ at, a, at a, an award show, they might kick you off the stage. Like, it's almost a prerequisite. It's part of the culture. It's part of self-promotion. It helps them to get ahead in some way oftentimes in album sales or votes. It's as huge for politicians who, who will invoke the name of Jesus because they believe that that will make their voting base like them. And they have nothing to do with Jesus. They couldn't care less about Jesus. I think that often they do that, invoke the name of Jesus, When they do that, those celebrities, I think, are are behaving like Felix, who continues to call on the name of Jesus with Paul in the hopes that Paul will do what? Give him some money. Pay him a bribe. That's the only reason he keeps saying, hey, come tell me more about Jesus. I'm super curious about Jesus. By the way, bring your purse with you, and I'll let you go free. That's the only reason he calls Paul in to talk about Jesus. He wants something out of it. Calling on Jesus for many celebrities is just a way to solidify a fan base and it has nothing to do with bringing glory to God. Are they still thanking their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when their album flops? When they throw an interception on the last play to lose a playoff game and they're in that interview and they're totally dejected, do they still say, you know what? Thanks, Jesus. This is My life is really great. I'm glad that I'm here. I don't hear that very often. When they lose a vote... By 30 percentage po- points, do they still thank their Lord and Jesus, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Sometimes. I think that's when you see where their heart really is at. And so when Christians blindly celebrate these people just because they're famous, we are demonstrating our own obsession with mammon. That is mammon. Wealth and fame. And when we see that, when we hear Jesus' name come out of wealthy, famous people, and we instantly are like, yes, this is great. Remember that the greatest in the kingdom isn't upfront famous celebrity. It's what? The greatest in the kingdom is a servant. That's the greatest in the kingdom. We become guilty of diluting the importance of the very things that Paul proclaimed to Felix and Drusilla. When we celebrate people who are guilty of not having self-control, of living unrighteous lifestyles, when the coming judgment should cause them to tremble, when we lionize those people, when we lionize It's because we're lionizing fame and it shows that we're guilty of worshiping mammon just as much as they are. The gospel is a message of hope and peace and reconciliation with God and with each other. That's its foundation. That's where we begin. It is full of goodness and beauty but with that goodness and beauty comes discipline and sacrifice and commitment to a life that's less focused on selfish pleasure and more committed to selfless purity. No, You can't just consume whatever you want. And I mean consume like actively consume, ingest, and consume like take part in. No, you can't just consume whatever you want. No, you can't just have sex with whoever you want. No, you can't just buy whatever you want. No, you can't just hate whoever you want. Mammon may let you get away with all those things, may actively promote you seeking out all of those things, but they will ultimately damage your heart and make you less able to serve God and neighbor because you're so busy serving only yourself. Mammon has a way to twist those good things, make them self-obsessed and self-driven, and totally corrupt them. That's what Mammon's really good at. There are a lot of teachings about money by Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, and I wanted to also mention, I found this online. It's by a gentleman named P.G. Nelson. He teaches in the U.K., it's eight pages, so it's like a 10-minute read, and it is really beautifully succinct and just examines all the teachings of Jesus. He categorizes them and and kind of um, distills the truth out of it for us. From everything from accumulating wealth to, to uh, financial security to taxes, it's really great. I found it really beneficial for myself, and I can make you a copy if you'd like. Um, just let me know, and I'd be happy to do so but it really focuses in on the teachings of Jesus and Paul about money. And there are a lot of them. And many of them cause in me the exact same reaction as Felix. Whoa, hold on a second there, big guy. Time out. You really want me to sell everything I have and give it all to the poor? You really want me to stop obsessing about what I wear and what I eat? You really want me to stop demanding that people pay me back when I lend to them? You really want me to pay all my taxes, no matter how unfair I think they are? You really want me to give cheerfully when I have a mortgage and a car repair and an RESP and a basement renovation to worry about? Give cheerfully? I don't know. How about I just get back to you when it's more financially convenient for me to get back to you? I am, after all, a very busy and important man with many busy and important obligations. And I, I say with a smirk, sometimes I feel that way about myself. Sometimes you feel that way about yourself because you are North American and you're you're in the center of a society that tells you, you are the most important thing in your life. And Jesus comes along and says, no, you are not the most important thing in your life. You're not. You're important, but you're not the most important. In other words, in all this, we hear it, we, we throw up a timeout, we say, I don't know about this. Because we want to dabble in some light mammon worship until this Jesus-worshipping thing starts to pay off. We want to dabble in worshiping mammon until worshiping Jesus starts to pay off. But mammon is a disgusting name, and service paid to its twisted and ugly and violent heart is, is disgusting. And Christians who serve mammon end up having their hearts turn twisted and ugly and violent. You cannot serve both God and mammon, which is probably the the clearest teaching Jesus had about teaching. You cannot serve both God and wealth. You will hate one and love the other, Jesus said. You have to choose. Which is it going to be? So let me give you one more example that really riles me up before I close with a note of encouragement. I mentioned last week how much I hate so-called Christian leaders who promote the idea that, that the church is under attack and Christianity is being martyred by the culture at large. I hate this part, partly because, A, even if it were true, it wouldn't change our mission in any way. Even if the world was actively antagonizing and persecuting you, as it did the early church, would that change anything about who we are and what we do? No. So let them persecute us. If it were true, it wouldn't mean we get up in a pulpit and cry and whine about it. It means we double down in our commitment to serve him faithfully. So that's the first reason why it annoys me. It it doesn't change our mission to love our God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And second of all, mostly, the reason why I hate it is because it's simply untrue. We are just not being martyred in any sense of that word, martyred. Are there people who don't like us? Yes. Is that martyrdom? No. For goodness sakes, no. Re-examine what a martyr is before you call yourself a martyr. The Church of the West is often so enslaved to mammon that we graft ourselves under the nearest source of financial and political power, that it creates some sort of mutated crossbreed of world and church. This is why separation of church and state is good for both church and state. When, when church and state sleep together, the child that they create is never one that converts to a church-like, Christ-like state of sacrifice and servitude. Instead, when church and state sleep together, the child that they create always converts to, to the more state-like, mammon-like life of greed and violence. Always. When we get in bed with power, the church gets corrupted. Always. To wit. Here's a recent example. Perhaps you've heard the name Pat Robertson lately. Does anybody, as soon as they say Pat Robertson, do you know what I'm going to talk about? Okay, well, if not, that's, that's good. Pat Robertson is a former um, Baptist preacher and president of Regent University. This Christian university in the states, who became a media mogul when he founded the Christian Broadcasting Network (CBN). Perhaps you watch CBN? That's I'm not. I'm, that's good. That's fine. Pat Robertson is now worth over 100 million dollars. A statement that should make anybody who's ever read the teachings of Jesus uncomfortable. This is band that I really love called Arcade Fire. Here I am promoting bands that are not Christian again. Sorry, Toby Keith lovers. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite bands, Arcade Fire, once wrote, you never trust a millionaire quoting the Sermon on the Mount. And I love that quote. Never trust a millionaire quoting the Sermon on the Mount. Mr. Robertson has been vocal in the past on things that I care about in ways that I think are wrong and unbiblical. He decried feminists as a bunch of baby killers, husband divorcers, um, What was? what else did he say, and lesbians. He said, That's what a, that's what a feminist is. Well, no, a feminist is just somebody who wants women to be on an equal plane with men. You know who the most prominent feminist of all time is? Jesus Christ is the most prominent feminist of all time. He more than anyone in his time put women on the same plane as men. So when you decry feminism, you're decrying some of the work of Jesus. Or there's another time after the earthquake in Haiti. Pat Robertson didn't say, you know, we need to help these people. He didn't say this is, this is a terrible tragedy. Pat Robertson said to about a nation who, that is dear to many of our hearts that the earthquake in Haiti happened because apparently Haiti had deals with the devil and practiced voodoo center, several centuries ago, and so now God is punishing them. Is is That is just a heartless, racist, self-righteous statement to make. It is so Pharisaic, it makes me tremble. Why did the Tower of Siloam fall, Mr. Robertson? This is Luke 13. Did it fall because those people were particularly sinful people? No. Crap happens. Awful stuff happens, and it doesn't mean God is judging them. What you should learn from this is it could happen to you, too. So repent before you perish like them. That's the message here. Not that Haiti is particularly sinful and America is great. It's just a terrible thing that happens. So show some empathy, for goodness sake. But what put Mr. Robertson in the news this week was his response to the killing of an American journalist named, and apologies, I'm going to butcher this name, Jamal Khashoggi. Anybody familiar with this case? Okay. He is an American citizen who has been um, very vocal and dissident against Saudi Arabia and their human rights violations. So he's, uh, he's not originally from America, but he was an American citizen writing for the Washington Post criticizing Saudi Arabia. He was in Turkey meeting up with his fiance he was kidnapped tortured dismembered by um saudi officials uh there's videotape or not video audio tape of this of him being tortured and dismembered which is gruesome and it's just this awful breach of human rights you should have the right to speak out against a country without fear of being tortured to death obviously well, what would you think an influential Christian leader would speak out about in this manner? Discuss at the loss of life? Solemn respect for someone who attempted to fight against injustice? Barb said, you would expect them to say, no, this is unjust. This is not, this cannot fly. You would expect righteous indignation at the use of torture and execution to silence a spokesperson for peace, wouldn't you? Well, Mr. Robertson's response was this. Everyone needs to calm down. And forget about this whole thing, because fighting with the Saudis could, get this, jeopardize the $110 billion arms deal we have with them. Seriously. The head of a Christian television network placed value on billions of dollars spent on weapons of destruction over the unjust torturing of a bell ringer for peace. This $110 billion deal for weapons is more important than the unjust killing of somebody who tries to promote peace. I agree. That's, that's, there's an entire wing of politics and worse than that, an entire branch of the church who thinks exactly like that. It's what happens when people attempt to worship God and mammon at the same time. They eventually get exposed as unloving hypocrites who are just seeking the next hundred million or frankly the next twenty bucks. They'll take that. Now that may seem harsh, but what was the thing that caused Jesus to fashion a whip and start tossing tables in the temple? Money, blending mammon and Yahweh a little too closely. That made him so mad he started overturning tables. Our peaceful, gentle Lord got righteously angry because they were taxing people. They were making the poor people hard to approach. They are making anybody. They were making a profit off people trying to get to know their God. million of personal wealth later, you can see that in prominent Christian leaders today. And it makes me sick, frankly. Blending mammon and Yahweh a little too closely is the easiest temptation for churches, the church, or individuals to get into. That's the easiest temptation. Ignoring the difficult challenges of faithfulness to retain and fight for our own power and prestige and profit margins. So, I've pointed the finger at a few people. Pointed at Felix and Drusilla. I've pointed at Toby Keith. I've pointed at Pat Robertson. None of those people care what I think to any degree. We should be pointing at ourselves. This is who the message, that's who the message is for. They may not care what I have to say, but we should care what Acts 24 has to say. Not to mention a tenth of the passages of the gospel and the 2000 verses of the Bible and, and, and half the parables of Jesus. We should care what those things say. Jesus took the enemy, mammon, and exposed it for the monster that it is, distracting us and devouring us and destroying us one commercial at a time, one covetous glance over the neighbor's fence at a time, one conflation between the Holy Spirit and Santa Claus at a time. Jesus completely devalued money. That's not to say he didn't see that it was important. He just devalued it. He stripped it of its value. It was totally... Jesus... Somebody says, Jesus, where are we going to find the money for this, this tax? He says, I don't care. Go find it in a fish's mouth. And they did. Jesus completely devalued money, not to mention the power and privilege that come with money. Completely devalued it. We should read the story of Felix's response to the gospel, and we should be convicted, because we too tend to back away when the conversation gets too personal and the focus moves to our paycheck. We don't like that. So I will leave us with this challenge knowing, as I do, that each one of you is a selfless giver. And I commend each one of you for your selfless giving. But I still want each one of us to be especially thoughtful of how we can combat the villain, Mammon, this week. So here's some questions. How much are we distracted by the allure of comfort and pleasure? How much are we spending needlessly, shaped by the world's command to consume, rather than the gospel's invitation to sacrifice? How much are we worrying over details and stuff, rather than our relationship with our King of Kings? Finally, how much are we hesitating at the challenging teachings of Jesus, excusing ourselves from faith by proclaiming that we're too busy, or too important, or it's too hard and too inconvenient? Those are tough questions that we have to ask ourselves continually. When I think of myself, I'm guilty of a lot of these things a lot of the time. There's a lot of learning I still have to do and a lot of growth that I can still seek out. This morning we sang, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Every time we step back from mammon and step towards Jesus, we see just how ugly the idol is and just how beautiful our Lord is. In the end, the greatest financial transaction in Scripture has nothing to do with money and everything to do with our souls. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Every transaction we make, social, financial, or moral, or otherwise, must be shaped by this, the most beautiful transaction of all, that you were bought at the price of God's only son. It's a transaction of love and sacrifice which results in salvation. So don't excuse yourself or exclude yourself from the terrific bargain before the deal is sealed just because of a few difficult down payments of treasures in heaven here on earth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the challenge of passages like this one in Acts 24. Um, they are very deeply convicting to us wealthy, powerful North Americans, and they should be convicting. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that this week you would challenge us with some of these questions behind me. I pray that you would challenge us with the questions of consumption, with the consumption of covetousness, of self-image based on what other people have. I pray that you would confront us with worrying over small details. I pray that you would confront us with our limited faith um, of our inability to get over our busyness and our self-importance. I pray that you would strip all those things away from us and take us away from mammon and towards you. I pray that this week each one of us would take steps um, away from mammon and towards you. And I, I know that that's possible in through your work, Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would see the blessings and the results that happen when we value sacrifice over profit margins. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I could probably squeeze in time for discussion of the eternal destination of my soul then, but not until then, because as you may remember, I'm very busy. Very important. Never trust a millionaire quoting the Sermon on the Mount.